Major funding for Telehell is provided by Dave's Archives. If you're looking for retro commercials from the 50s all the way up to the 90s, and possibly some points beyond in the future, turn to Dave's Archives, also home to the TGIF live stream on Friday nights. Go to davesarchives.com. By RetroCirc on YouTube, home to the off-duty mind players and all those off-air commercials that he likes to put up so much from the 80s and 90s. Go to YouTube and type in RetroCirc, spelt with a Q at the end. And by the continuing financial support of our patrons at patreon.com slash telehealthpodcast, including Beth Campbell, Mr. Cheeseball, Joss Hoskinson, Rick Kalaki Jr., Chris Michaud, Meredith Morrissey, Jose Pasante, and Neil Weinstein. Thank you. This program is about unsolved mysteries. Whenever possible, the actual family members and police officials have participated in recreating the events. What you are about to see is not a news broadcast. A TV network in England airs a sitcom. From 1999 to 2001, this sitcom airs a total of 22 episodes. When I was your age, I had a wage packet in me back pocket, and your mum thinking I was up the stick. She actually liked girls. Only Miss Titley. Dad and... One year later, upon hearing how successful the show was in the UK, an American TV network tries to duplicate its success by trying to do the exact same things that its international counterpart tried to do. Hey, Lou, this guy thinks he invented cable. <laughs> That's when I learned the lesson. The show was announced for the fall TV season of 2002 and was scheduled to air that November. But then, two days before the first show was scheduled to air, the entire series disappears without a trace. But why? For every mystery, there is someone, somewhere, who knows the truth. Perhaps that someone is listening. Perhaps it's you. Join us now as we search for the truth. Perhaps you can help solve a mystery. Oh, okay, not really since that's what we're gonna do, but you know what I mean. Just roll the titles, please. And now. Fox. Fox. It's Fox Failure February. In Telehair. This isn't our first rodeo with American adaptations of British TV shows. And quite honestly, it's a well that can never truly dry up. The USA has been crossing the pond for a number of years and vice versa. And more often than not, the track record has leaned on the positive side. This doesn't mean that the transatlantic transplants will work successfully every time, but when it works, it works really well. For instance, there was this show that aired on British TV in the 1970s called Till Death Us Do Part. Listen, that woman, that Mary Whitehouse is concerned for the moral fibers and the well-being of this beloved country. Well, never mind about 
is being rotted away by your corrupt films and your telly and your bloody BBC's the worst of the lot. The tale of a working class and over-opinionated bigot who is constantly sparring with his son-in-law, which you might know better in the U.S. as this. And you knew where you were then! Or how about the British sitcom classic, Keep It in the Family? What's for lunch? Fillet of veal with wine sauce and button mushrooms. Ah... I can't smell it. It hasn't thawed yet. (laughs) But I've got a homemade sponge. Can I have a piece now? I'm starved. Certainly not. It's the story of a cartoonist whose grown daughters are paying rent in the duplex he owns. Move everything to California, put the daughters in skimpy clothing, and you've got two clothes for comfort. Does anyone know what's going on here? I think I do. Those two women were attracted to Moreau. They desired him and helped themselves. to what? They had their way with him. And of course, let's not forget about one of the most famous British to American exports of recent years. I haven't even begun to scratch the surface of all the reality competition programs that have made their way to American shores over the years, or the imports that came in from other countries. But you get my point. When an adaptation works, it works very well. Which can only mean that the few times importing a UK show doesn't work, it craters so hard that it shifts British traffic to the right side of the road. These three gentlemen would like to register. We'll register them. Do I have to do everything around here? Good afternoon, gentlemen. And what can I do for you three gentlemen? But while we're on the subject of British sitcoms, this brings us to a TV writer, author, and OBE named Gerald Jed Mercurio. The son of Italian immigrants, Mercurio found his way through the Royal Air Force's medical branch in the 1980s. After receiving numerous commendations for his services, he was able to parlay what he learned there into a career in medicine. In the mid-1990s, and on a complete and total whim, Mercurio answered an ad in the British Medical Journal that was seeking out writers for an upcoming medical drama on the BBC called Cardiac Arrest. Although the series only lasted two years, it was both lauded and a thorn of controversy over how realistic the depictions of medical procedures would appear. Still though, writing on the series gave Mercurio his calling card to showbiz, opening doors to producing and directing opportunities. Now, you would think that with an introductory job like this, the career path for Mercurio was pretty much written out for him. Nothing but heavy-handed but hard-hitting dramas. Which, spoiler alert, he would eventually do throughout his career. But before he got to that eventuality, Mercurio wanted to see just how much range he had as a writer. His next project would be a dysfunctional family sitcom for the UK's Granada Television for broadcast on the ITV network. And I'm willing to forgive how crass this idea sounded because ever since Norman Lear in the 1970s practically reinvented what a so-called family sitcom could be, why not keep reinventing the wheel? This was the tale of a working-class family of the 1970s from the town of Dudley, West Midlands, southeast of Wolverhampton and northeast of Birmingham if you're keeping track. The working-class father at an auto plant breaks his back on his first day on the job, only for the same plant to go out on strike the next day. 
so he pretty much sits around the house. The husband, naturally, has a wife who pretty much pulls the strings and keeps the family from falling apart. And it wouldn't be a family comedy without younger family members. So we have two brothers, one named Gordon and the other named Darren. Gordon, the older brother, is perceived as an intellectual but shy, which doesn't sit well with his father who wants him to follow in his footsteps and have a blue collar job. Younger brother Darren, naturally, looks up to Gordon and serves as the show's narrator. The major story of the show, aside from Gordon trying to fit in, is the crush that he will forever harbor for one of his school teachers, who also happens to be one of his neighbors, while at the same time avoiding the wrath of his teacher's actual boyfriend, a psychotic gym teacher who does for physical education what Steve Martin in Little Shop of Horrors did for dentistry. Here now is just a brief glimpse into the world of... The Grimleys. Give me a break, I couldn't be more excited, I must say. Not <laughs> that one. And by the way, I'm only gonna play a small part of this because I wanna save the rest for when we get to our subject later. Margaret Thatcher was being elected leader of the Conservatives. The Vietnam War was coming to an end. Halle and Frazier were fighting the thriller in Manila, but all that was nothing compared to Vauxhall Beavers, platform shoes, and the Bay City Rollers. The Grimleys lasted 22 episodes from 1999 to 2001, plus a pilot made in 1997. Having sat through both versions of the pilot and never setting foot in the UK, I can't exactly make any fair judgments about it one way or the other. But the show did have its fans on both sides of the pond, and I can't take that away from them. One particular American TV network had a much stronger interest in the show. Fox saw great potential in the Grimleys, but they knew going into it that trying to keep the show's original spirit while changing things from one side of the world to the other was going to be a delicate balancing act. Fortunately, the network found its footing in the sitcom world by the turn of the century, and to ensure that the success would continue, the network tapped a pair of writer-producers from one of their existing hits to spearhead the show's development. The writing team of Joshua Sternin and Jeffrey, now Jennifer, Ventimilla made the rounds on a number of sitcom mainstays throughout the 90s and 2000s, including episodes of The Simpsons. Murphy Brown, and up to the year 2002, the duo's biggest credit was serving as writer-producers for that 70s show. They would be the ones to transform blue-collar life in the industrial sector of England to blue-collar life in the industrial sector of the United States. Simple. Just move them from the West Midlands to the suburbs of America, though they make up a fictional town in this version called Hacktown. Sternin would later say in interviews that the town itself was based more on Allentown, Pennsylvania. Having never set foot there either, I can neither confirm nor deny the comparison. So for argument's sake, let's just say they were trying to duplicate the Rust Belt. One big change that was made to this version was when exactly the show would take place. The Grimleys had their stories set in the mid to late 1970s. Unfortunately, Fox already had one of those shows on the air at the time. So, because nobody likes to be a copycat, things were set in present day. No problem. Next change, the name of the family. 
I'm sure a name like Grimly is pretty common, but never underestimate a potential viewer tuning in and then changing the channel after finding out that the show is not about Martin Short or his extended family. That already happened once in cartoon form, thank you very much. Dear Diary, what a day I had today. I had to practice my triangle in the morning instead of the afternoon because Cousin Lamar called and it seems like he's sick, which is sad, but on the other hand, he asked me to drive his horse and buggy, which made me go completely mental. So instead, they decided to call the family and the series The Grubs. I'm guessing because of onomatopoeia, Grubs sounded funnier to say than Grimly, but I digress. Now all that was left to do was to make sure that the people they would cast to play the family did the UK version any justice. First, we have the mother of the Grubs, doing the best she can, played by longtime stage and screen mainstay, Carol Kane. Ours like yours is a profound tradition of tolerance, brotherhood, and faith. Now, feel me like a Greek so I can get out of here. <laughs> I honestly don't have a single bad thing to say about her, partly because I haven't seen her in a single bad performance. Even if the movie or TV show she'd appear in was less than stellar, Carol Kane is easily a highlight wherever she goes. From her Oscar-nominated role in 1975's Hester Street, to Andy Kaufman's wife Simka on Taxi, to giving Bill Murray the beating of his lifetime in Scrooge, and even recent roles, like her landlord character from Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Yeah, I'm calling the police. You trust those clowns? Are you kidding me? You got rights in your own home. Shoot us. I hope she continues to entertain for years to come. Somebody else who I hope gets to work just as long without a single bad thing being said about him, a then 14-year-old Michael Cera. Are you okay? Me? Mm -hmm. I'm great. Yeah? I'm great. Good, yeah. She wasn't for us. But no, she's, she's a great girl. What are those other guys? You think there are other guys? Just a year before Arrested Development would put him on the right path, Sarah did what other child actors would do and get a start in TV commercials. And then later on, some roles on kids' shows in his native Canada. And although he would appear in a number of low to mid-budget movies afterward, The Grubs was slated to be his first American sitcom. Which brings us to who would play the patriarch of the family. <sighs> Which I hesitate immensely to talk about because the actor they hired was a critically acclaimed can of chock full of nuts named Randy Randall. Rudy Quaid. Now, I know we're a show about TV criticism, and as such, we only criticize TV shows and do our best not to poke fun at the personal lives of those who act in them unless it's a lighthearted jab or something that doesn't promise any lawsuits. Pretty much everything we say here about anybody is all in good fun, good taste, and never 100% vindictive. That being said, holy shit, there's a lot to unpack about Randy Quaid. On the one hand, the performances he gave in the 1970s through the early 2000s were well-deserving of all the critical acclaim he wound up getting, whether it be in some of his dramatic roles like The Last Detail, who incidentally also had Carol Kane in it. You're a Something lighter, like the times he played Cousin Eddie in the National Lampoon's Vacation movies. I hope you didn't do this all on our account, Clark. <laughs> Kids, 
Come on out here and see what Uncle Clark's done to the house. Or something that toes the line between the two, like his role in Independence Day. Pilot, you armed? Armed and ready, sir. I'm packing. There's no doubt in my mind that Quaid was, and could still very much be, a great actor. Or at least he would continue to be one were it not for... shall we say... some... interesting... career choices. For the past 20 years, my wife Evie and I have been the victims of criminal activities perpetrated by a small network of individuals who are out to destroy us personally, professionally, and financially. The American male human will die for us. He will die for us if we keep his brain soft and juvenile like mutton. How do you impeach a president who has helped create perhaps the greatest economy in the history of our country? All-time best unemployment numbers. More people working today than ever before. Rebuilt military. And choice for vets became number one in the world and independent in energy. And that's all I'm gonna say about the personal stuff. There are other forums where we can poke the hungry bears, but this is not one of them. Okay, maybe one more. Hashtag PMC. Police media corruption. Ba-dum! But that's it. So, to recap, You've got a show being developed by a top writer-producer team. You've got two multi-hyphenated award winners and nominees playing the parents, and a young actor with a bright future ahead of him, all set to adapt a beloved British sitcom for American shores. A show so beloved in the UK that the Fox network made the move of ordering eight episodes of the series, including its pilot, and having it scheduled to air at 9.30 on Sunday nights in the fall of 2002, right after Malcolm in the Middle, another highly popular TV show involving a suburban, dysfunctional family. All of the episodes were fully produced and ready to go. So, how come nobody ever had a chance to see it publicly until many, many years later, when said unreleased episodes got leaked onto the internet? Nah, I'm sick of unsolved mysteries. Let's do Knight Rider. shadowy flight into the dangerous world of a TV show that does not exist. Now, nah, let's do Incredible Hulk. The Grubs is wanted for murdering a fall TV schedule it was never a part of. The Grubs is believed to be dead, and it must let the world think that it is dead until it can find a way to control the raging spirit that dwells within it. Regardless of its fate, this is still gonna be a weird one to sit through. After the break. Hey there, this is your Colonel talking. Now I got something here that's downright fun. My new popcorn chicken. Crunchy morsels of tender white meat. It's mouth-popping good. Woo, look at him go. Hurry down 
to KFC, try my new popcorn chicken for one night a night. It's more fun than watching me. Unless, of course, Colonel get funky. Go, Colonel. Go, Colonel. At KFC, we do chicken right. And not just in a bucket, neither. This week on Telehell's premium content of the damned. What removes all kinds of offensive odors, unhealthy tobacco smoke, irritating pollen and dust from the indoor air you breathe? It's the amazing Clean Air by Ronco. Clean Air by Ronco can filter all the air in a 15 by 20 foot room in 33 minutes. Its quiet electric fan draws contaminated air through the activated charcoal filter. Offensive odors and smoke are removed. Harmful pollutants and dust are trapped. Now your family can breathe clean, deodorized air every day. Clean Air by Ronco gets rid of strong kitchen odors, foul bathroom odors and lingering pet odors before they're trapped in draperies, fabrics on furniture, even your clothes. For larger rooms, get the giant Clean Air 3. It has triple filtering capacity. Smoke-filled offices and conference rooms need Clean Air by Ronco. Restaurants and public places need Clean Air by Ronco. Allergy sufferers definitely need Clean Air by Ronco. Show you really care. Give Clean Air by Ronco. What a great Christmas gift. The only way to listen to Telehealth's premium content of The Damned is by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash podcast For just a few bucks a month, you can listen to our premium content and get some swag along the way. Once again, that's patreon.com slash podcast Now at new low prices. And now, back to this week's torture. The year 2002. Patriotism and finger-pointing reach an all-time high. An upstart singing competition winds up being the unlikely holy grail for a certain TV network. And somewhere at the headquarters of that same TV network, executives are about to screen for TV critics what they thought was going to be the continuing in a long line of long-running dysfunctional family sitcoms. As we introduce ourselves to a family of grubs, a show so dysfunctional that they actually managed to move into Carl Winslow's house. I'm not joking. That's the opening shot of the show. You can find this show online by searching the Internet Archive at archive.org, and I guarantee you that the first thing you'll see is the house from Family Matters. Five seconds in, and I'm honestly not sure whether to slap the show in the face for blatant thievery or applaud them for how bold the thievery is. But that would be judging a book by its cover. Almost literally. What matters is how we're introduced to our family of dysfunctionals. Today, I'm going to curl up into a ball and hope I don't get hurt. Again. Today, I'm gonna blow up a toilet. Again. Today, I'm going to make breakfast, pack the boys' lunches, do the laundry, cook dinner, wash the dishes, pick up the house, and count my blessings. And vacuum. Today, I'm going to dig the underwear out of my crack. You know, I think something's missing from each of those daily affirmations. Because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. But please, continue. Someday, Dad, I'm gonna fall off a forklift just like you. (laughs) Forklift falling serious business, Jimmy. You land one way, you end up like me. You land another, 
You're paralyzed for life. But that's like 10 times more money. <laughs> 10 times? Mm. I'm gonna throw myself down the stairs. Jimmy, Jimmy, someone else's house. Location, location, location. And already we have a key set of differences between this show and its UK, hesitate to say, equivalent. On the UK version, the father's disability relegates him to his barca lounger for pretty much 99% of the series' run. Mr. Grimley never leaves his seat and is pretty much there to spout out darkly shaded comic relief. Can't you be proud for once in your life? Our son's an actor. He's a skipping rug. A skipping rug with pink handles. I don't know where he gets it from. But you're not going to see that here. For starters, Quaid is up and about and expounding more energy in one minute of screen time than Mr. Grimley ever will in three years. Maybe I'm reading too much into this. Maybe this show is trying to be its own thing while still maintaining its core elements. But then again, somebody who was dormant and sedentary on the original show was a pretty core element. Eh, maybe the rest of the family will be more true to their originals. Well, it's just that career day is in a few months, and I was hoping maybe this year you could talk about... You know, a career. Well, you think what I do is easy? I've got insurance investigators breathing down my neck. I can't be seen out there mowing the yard or emptying the gutters or shoveling the driveway. I've got to watch your mother do all that. As we now see young Michael Sarah in the school world as we are about to meet his future crush. But first, in anticipation of her arrival, a quick montage of his previous scholastic disappointments. From now on, don't raise your hand unless you know the answer. Even if you know the answer. Just don't raise your hand. <laughs> None of you saw anything. And for the sake of this being an audio show, all the teachers were old, mean, and creepy looking. I mean, I get exaggerating a little bit just to get the point across, but this just seemed like ageism, as we finally get to meet the object of young Scott Pilgrim's affections. Point of full and complete disclosure, been there several times. But come on, what boy didn't have a crush on their teachers growing up? Now the story of Mary Kay Letourneau. You may remember, she was a teacher sent to prison for having sex with a 13-year-old student. Then they married, started a family. That doesn't count for a multitude of reasons. Anyway. So far, Sarah's character has been pretty accurate to the UK version. He too is a wishy-washy, heart-sick, sensitive nerd who wants more out of life than what he's given. Surely, there's gotta be a way to mess that up. Act one shows us how. Hi class, I am Ms. Kronetsky. Uh, right, uh, so it looks like you have been reading Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, okay, that's getting a little creepy. A little creepy. Well, I did say this was going to happen, so here we are once again with another UK-US compare and contrast. Because guess what? The Grimley's first episode had to do with Romeo and Juliet too. Of course, there is one massive difference between both shows. First, the Grimley's. Good night, good night. 
Parting is such sweet sorrow that I shall say good night till it be morrow. Sleep dwell upon thine eyes, peace in thy breast. <laughs> and now the U.S. Come on, Mitchell. Now. Romeo meets Juliet. He abandons his family. He slays Tybalt, then he commits suicide. Now, what could drive a man to do all that? Love? <laughs> That's right, Mitchell. Love. Why are we hearing a laugh track on a show that doesn't need one? The UK version did just fine without it, just as many UK comedy shows tend to do fine without it. The fact that we're now being conditioned to laugh at the same jokes the UK did isn't really giving me much hope here. Something that does give me hope, however, is the fact that Randy Randall Rudy Quaid found his Barca lounger and will hopefully be as stark and deprecating as his UK equivalent as he forces his one good son to play human antenna. Four. Seven. No, wait, what was that for? Uh, channel five. Hey, celebrity boxing. Gary Coleman versus Webster. All right, that's not good. Dad, I want to skip antenna duty tonight. What for? I want to read. Read? <laughs> uh, Miss Kronetsky says reading will improve our lives. Well, that Miss Kronetsky's a meddlesome little bitch, isn't she? Oh, yeah. I can just picture the PSAs now. Kids, if somebody pressures you to read something because it's for the good of your education, don't call your teacher a bitch. Instead, just get the story as a book on tape. You can hear the story without straining your eyes, and you just might be able to absorb more knowledge, and no one will be the wiser. And now, back to the parents being encouraging. Look, Mitch, in a few years, you're gonna drop out of school and get a job down at the steel mill like I did. Like my dad did. Like your brother will. Jimmy understands that, and look how happy he is. I'm very happy, Dad. Shut up, Jimmy. <laughs> That's just the way it's always been with this family, for generations. We're like the Kennedys, only instead of being rich and powerful, we're crap. Let's now meet the American version of the Grimley's sadistic phys ed teacher, who, for the record, I thought was the funniest part of the UK show. Women cannot resist. You could pull more birds than James Bond, David Cassidy, and Dr. Neville Bywater out of General Hospital put together. You are successful. You are popular. Houses are for whips. This is why you live in a temple of sport. Doug Dynamo Digby is a winner. And on the other side of the pond... Sound you're about to hear is my kneecap shattering. At that moment, I knew I'd never get to play pro. A weaker man would have crumbled to the ground, but I struggled on for one more yard. And do you know what that made me? A gym teacher? A man, grub. And that'll turn you into men. You're gonna climb the ropes. 
got He's just as sadistic as the gym teacher in the UK. In fact, I think he may be more so, because he's letting kids hit the ground without any gym mats. But we simply can't fire the guy for being too abusive, because then it can't be funny, right? Don't read too much into that. Heading back to the classroom. So your homework is to tell me what the future holds for you. Okay, but if I have no future, that means I have no homework. <laughs> no, but it can be anything you want. A song, a poem, whatever you find the most edifying. Enlightening. <laughs> Good. <laughs> One other difference between the Grubs and the Grimleys. At least the students who went to school on the Grimleys looked like they had fully functioning brains. Here, they're trying to make all kids look like contaminated water was a part of their complete breakfast. And lunch. And dinner, too. As we now get more encouragement from Mom and Dad. How is school? It was edifying. Edifying? Well, you're turning into quite the clever little girl, aren't you, Mitch? I just meant school was good. And just say good, honey. You'll have more friends that way. Speaking from personal experience, sometimes it's okay not to use the big words in public, unless you actually enjoy getting wedgies from bullies. So let's move on now to just how hostile the grubs can be towards somebody who's actually encouraging and nurturing towards one of their own. Hi, I'm Rosie. Uh, you must be Mitch's new teacher. Well, I want to thank you for broadening his horizons and turning him against us. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm Heather. I knew a Heather once. Oh, no, it was Margaret. Heather was her stripper name. So now, after Carol Kane just lobbied to play Joan Crawford in a future production of Mommy Dearest, it's time for the hot teacher to meet the hot mess, also known as Randy Randall Rudy Quaid. And Dad, do you want to meet my teacher? Oh, all right. Yeah. Hi, Damn. Well, goodbye. Nope. Uh-uh. Nope. Can't do it. Uh-huh. Not today. And don't think it hasn't been a little slice of heaven. Because it hasn't. Uh, fine, I'll finish it. Which brings us to yet another comparison between U.S. and U.K., as well as the reminder that on the U.K. show, the father sat in his chair and did next to nothing aside from the occasional quip. The notion of Randy Randall Rudy Quaid getting turned on while not wearing pants is just... wrong. What, what's wrong with your neck? Oh, I, I heard it in the, in the war. <laughs> on drugs. Mitchell here is my favorite student. Oh, yeah, that's nice. <laughs> Say, would you like some chips? Uh, they're very uh, edifying. As we head back to school, young George Michael Bluth comes across the only other thing that the U.S. version got right. The fact that the hot teacher and the sadistic coach are dating. Though in the U.K., the coach's antagonization of Gordon Grimley were equal parts dark humor and psychological thriller. 
clearly the mood needs to lighten for the USA. So barbaric, but uh, you make it sound sort of exciting. Well, I'm coaching a game on Friday, and maybe afterwards we can. No! <laughs> Mitchell? <laughs> I thought I was late, but. No! <laughs> I'm not! <laughs> Phew! <laughs> Act two begins with young Polly Bleeker pining some more at his teacher from afar. All the while, he takes a massive chance on life and asks Randy, Randall, Rudy, Quaid for some romantic advice. How do you get a girl to like you? I don't know, uh, get her pregnant? <laughs> no, I mean before all that. Uh, get her drunk. <laughs> If I may be so bold, let me show you how a real dysfunctional TV dad does it. Whoa, this is not a candy machine. All right, I guess it's time we have the talk. This one is ribbed for her pleasure. The first time, maybe, but after that, don't waste the extra quarter. Now that you're a man, let's go get a burger. Thank you, Ken Titus, as we now see young whatever his name was in Superbad, psych himself up in order to become the jailbait boyfriend of the teacher of his dreams, and why is the FBI sitting outside my door? I just have to find a way to impress Miss Kronetsky. I know. I'll use the homework assignment on fate. I'll show her that I'm mature, intelligent, and sophisticated. And how are you going to do that? I'll make a shoebox diorama. Ah, <laughs> uh, diorama-rama. My favorite school event, next to Hearing Test Thursday. So he makes his diorama. His family hopes it will only be a middling success, because that's what they all expect of this kid. Even though the kid actually wants to succeed just a little better than that. The next day, he takes the diorama to school. And particularly to his gym class for some reason. Wait a minute, doesn't high school have some sort of storage system when it comes to protecting things that you don't want destroyed accidentally or even on purpose? You know, a, a storage system that keeps things locked down with a combination lock and aluminum doors? A storage system that locks your... Oh, fuck it. Just have the gym teacher ruin his hard work already. Put that thing down. Get moving. Well, it's for English class, and it's really important. Oh, I see. English class, important. Phys ed, not important. Is that what you're saying, Grub? Hmm? Well, this is some fine workmanship. <laughs> Let me put it in a safe place for you. Hmm? Now, we're gonna run hurdles. What? No, it'll get crushed! Not if you get there first. I don't believe in... What the fuck is wrong with this show? It's like the producers were told, do a sitcom about a dysfunctional family similar to the one from the UK that we all enjoyed. But instead of making it somewhat charming in spite of its dark tone, have the humor range anywhere between needling to cruel to sadistic. Because that's the exact same shows we have airing on Sunday night. Oh, wait a minute. No, we don't. We actually have shows that have run for years and are critically acclaimed. You people used to work on that 70s show and this is the best you could do? What the hell are you people thinking? Or so I think the conversation would go. So, after a blow like that, how does young Nick Twisp cope with everything? Now, who could have seen this coming? <laughs> yeah, great, Dad. Diorama got crushed. I had to write an essay in 20 minutes. I'll never get the girl, I'll never get higher than the sea, and I'll never have a better life. 
You happy? I'm happy. <laughs> assholes, ladies and gentlemen. Assholes. So now, the show that's been thinly veneered as a dysfunctional family sitcom has to do the one thing that all family sitcoms seem to do, no matter how awful some of them can be. They try to force a moral of the story down our throats in an effort to convince the audience that maybe they're not total creeps after all. You think I don't understand, huh? Well, I do. I had a dream once. This was before you and your brother were born, before there was anyone to hold up the antenna. The picture was so bad, I couldn't tell the Osmonds from the Jackson 5. And it hit me. Ding! If voices come through phone cable, well, maybe pictures could come through TV cable. Cable TV! Oh, they laughed at me down at the patent office. They laughed in that cruel way that only patent clerks can. That's when I learned the lesson. The lesson that you learned today. What's that? Never have a dream, son. <laughs> it only hurts when you try. Oh, for fuck's sake. Homer, please give us some smart stupidity. Kids, you tried your best, and you failed miserably. The lesson is... Never try. And of course, because we now seem to be going completely out of the way to make this show absolutely nothing like its British counterpart, we naturally have to have some semblance of a happy ending tacked on to the end of this. Well, I know you're curious about your essay, so here you go. Well, good night. Don't sell yourself short, Mitchell. Keep trying. I will keep trying, Miss Kornetsky, I will. And someday, I'll make you mine. For the record, here's how the UK version of this same episode would turn out. Unlike the US, they actually go through the trouble of presenting a Romeo and Juliet stage play instead of giving it simple lip service. Speaking of, Gordon Grimley tries to get some of his own lip service with his teacher, thanks to the actual Juliet getting locked up in a bathroom by the sadistic P.E. teacher. They get to the scene where Romeo and Juliet gets married, but the P.E. teacher hits the fire alarm just as the two of them kiss. Which, saying this plot point out loud, okay, maybe I can see why they had to change it for the U.S. Otherwise, I think we can make it official. I think I know why Fox would do an about-face on this show after greenlighting it. Let's solve this unsolved mystery in the Nine Circles. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery! This show gets the most obvious ring of the bell that we've ever given a TV show because not a single one of the eight produced episodes of this program ever saw the light of day, with the exception of finding them through the Internet Archive. Never before, since, or ever will you find a TV show in a bigger state of limbo than this. Not to mention the fact that a fully produced and advertised TV show getting the axe two days before it was supposed to premiere has all the earmarkings of network treachery. But now we get to the why of it all. How come the network pulled the plug before the show was even supposed to premiere? For starters, the critics who were screened this show felt slightly different than the Fox network. The New York Daily News spewed, quote, With the season premiere of 24, Fox made the best and most eagerly awaited programming move of its entire season. This Sunday, it makes another wonderful, equally welcome move, 
by not presenting its previously scheduled premiere of The Grubs. The show, starring Randy Quaid and Carol Kane as the heads of a hopelessly dysfunctional household, think live-action Simpsons but without the wit and warmth, was announced months ago as the Sunday 9.30pm entry for Falls Fox season. Critics previewed it in July. It was horrendous. The Grubs would have gotten my vote as the worst new show the broadcast TV season. The qualifier broadcast eliminating the Anna Nicole show from contention. But Fox came to its senses, and last week yanked The Grubs from its schedule for good, before viewers could see the train wreck for themselves. In its place, a quantum improvement, a rerun of Malcolm in the Middle. End quote. The San Francisco Chronicle declared it to be one of the worst shows of the past several seasons dating back from 2002 and backwards, and Variety placed it as A number one on its list of the worst TV shows of the 2002 season. A pretty easy layup for Wrath. And as for why the critics said what they said, I know dysfunctional TV families seem to have a ready-made aura of their characters not giving a crap, but that non-crap giving is usually doled out in small doses. Even the most screwed up TV families I can think of still manages to muster enough dams to give to actually look out for one another. The Bundys? The family credo is Hooters, Hooters, yum, yum, yum. <laughs> Hooters, Hooters on a girl that's dumb. The Connors? I'll do everything else, like I always do. Are you ever sorry we got married? Every second of my life. The Simpsons. As far as anyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. Hell, even one of my all-time personal favorite TV shows knew how to play dysfunction like a finely tuned orchestra, let alone the fiddle. The Los Angeles Times states 63% of American families are now considered dysfunctional. Good, because that means when Armageddon happens, 37% of this population is going to lose their mind. Oh my God, the world is over! A 63%? We're gonna go, hey, there's nobody watching the Lexus dealership. And no matter how negative some of these TV families seemed on the surface, the families still looked out for each other in the end, even if it was done in the most circuitous of ways. Here, the line between negative and realistic gets burnt to a crisp since it looks as though they're going out of their way to hope that their own children calls for child protective services. And I know what you're thinking now. Didn't the Grimleys do the exact same thing on the British version with their own kids? I can't believe it's our Gordon's big night and Jan's got to sit in that chair. I ain't just gonna sit in this chair. I might drink some beer. I guess they just appreciated dire circumstances more over there. So much so that it looked like the American version tried to overdo it on the course correction in trying to make their version look similar to the UK's version. But different enough so that it could still be its own thing that the whole show wound up a mutated mess that's both fraud and heresy not just towards the source material, but also dysfunctional family sitcoms in general. And given what material was presented to us, I can further see why Fox pulled the plug prematurely. Between the adults of this world treating the children like they were third-class citizens, to said children acting as though they're one evolutionary step behind Plankton, to overemphasizing the lust factor while crushing hard over a teacher, the show seemed to have forgotten the most important rule of dysfunctional family sitcoms. The simple, universal fact that no matter how dark the content is, it still has to be funny. The Grubs earned six out of nine circles of telehell. And that's gonna do it for Fox Failure February. I hope you enjoyed...
Tom, what is it? I'm not going to do another Fox failure. Because next month is March. That would inherently not make it Fox failure February. It'd be Fox failure March. Who would want that? Okay, fine. If it makes you all stop booing, I'll do one more Fox failure in two weeks. And this one goes way back. Next time on Telehell, we'll consider March a wild card month because we have some due diligence to take care of. One of which includes something from the Fox Network's very infancy. Saturday, can a nice girl survive in a joint like this? Let me explain a little something to you about prison, dear. Women in prison. You're in one! Saturday. Until then. If it's not in telehell, it's not worth a damn. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. The show may be over, but you know where to find us. On social media, Twitter and Facebook, at Telehell Podcast. Want to hear some premium content? Go to patreon.com slash telehellpodcast. And if you have any questions or comments about this show, feel free to contact us at our complaint line, telehellpodcast at gmail.com. But even more than that, please be sure to like, comment, rate, subscribe, lie to us all over the places where Telehell is streaming, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and many others, just by Googling Telehell. Telehell.